Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. On the local news roundup, the controversial Unified Development Ordinances now in effect raise concerns among South Park area residents. Charlotte City Council debates giving the new owners of the old Duke Energy Building tax rebates and continues the debate over criminal penalties for quality of life ordinances. New figures indicate ridership on cats is on the rise. The $2.5 billion in CMS bonds get the go-ahead and suddenly fluoride in the water becomes a topic of debate in Union County. Here to discuss those stories and more is Steve Harrison, WFAE's political reporter. Joe Bruno is also with us, reporter for WSOC-TV and host of their weekly Political Beat program. Hunter Signs, who's sitting right next to Joe because they're both employed by Channel 9, is also here. And Mary C. Curtis is a columnist for RollCall.com and host of their Equal Time podcast. Good morning. Welcome to you all. Good morning. Morning. Don't have double jump trouble in. today. <laughs> That's right. We do. Let's start with the ACC. The ACC, which was a, a, a stalwart of the Carolinas, went away for a while, but now they're coming back, Joe. They're bringing back their tournaments beginning next year, and three of the next five basketball tournaments will be in Charlotte, right? Right. So as a part of the deal for the ACC getting so much money in the budget, they had to agree to host a certain number of events over the next 10 years in North Carolina, and they are following through on their promise. So we got men's basketball champs in 2025, 2026, and 2028, the women's basketball champs in 2027, lacrosse 2024 through 2028, and baseball, Wendy, the producer, and uh, my favorite uh, tournament of them all, 2024, 2026, and 2028 at Trucefield. So they're here for the next five years, and we'll see if they stay longer than that. But that came out late yesterday afternoon, I think, uh, and so now we've covered it. Uh, Charlotte's Unified Development Ordinances uh, uh, were controversial when they passed uh, on a very close vote. The UDO went into effect last summer, and now eight months after it taking effect, the impact is beginning to be felt and it has some people a little upset. Uh, specifically, triplexes are popping up in the Barclay Downs neighborhood in the South Park region, and residents in that area are beginning to be concerned. Steve, why? Well, they, uh, some of them, some of the residents, many of the residents feel like that the triplexes kind of disrupt the character of their neighborhood. They don't want them. Um, and... You know, I think when we discussed, I mean, we talked about the UD on this program for many, many times, right? And it was a very theoretical thing about, you know, allowing more flexibility to builders to increase the housing supply. And it was kind of all, uh, call it, you know, a mental exercise in a way. But now it's actually happening. And and people are, uh, you know, able to buy older homes and tear them down and put in triplexes. And it's, yeah, it's bothering some people. And uh, so we're starting to see the impact. So Barkley Downs, for those who've never been there or don't go there very often, is a neighborhood built around the 60s, somewhere in the 60s, mostly single family, all single family homes, uh, except for a few apartment buildings that have cropped up here and there. Uh, and they are brick and they look like they were built when they were built in the 60s. And now they're putting these triplexes in. 
Uh, is it just that people weren't paying attention when the debate was going on for the UDO or that they couldn't picture it in their minds until they saw these things being built in on their street? I would say a lot of people just weren't paying attention. I mean, even though all of us on this panel, we did tons of stories on it. It was a huge deal. People just don't, it doesn't resonate with them until suddenly there's change on your street. I mean, that's that's my take on it. So in the Charlotte Ledger, Tony Masillo reports that, quote, several residents who live near the future triplexes said they didn't want to talk publicly but were concerned, even angry, because triplexes are, quote, not a style of housing that they want in their neighborhood. And records show that a company called Aspen City Homes is working on at least seven more triplex projects around the city, including one in the uh, 300 block of Providence and Old Providence, I think, or, or, or Providence, really, let's put it there. And then two more projects like this in the Sedgefield neighborhood near Marsh Road. Uh, are, are, they, are we going to hear similar complaints as these start going up in those neighborhoods, too? I would assume so. Um... You know, especially the ones that are kind of deep in a neighborhood, if you're on a kind of a corner or near a major road, those may those may kind of slide by in a way. But I think as, as more and more show up in the heart of single family neighborhoods. Yeah, I think so. Joe, let's not forget, though, the whole point of this was to build more housing types to make sure housing can be built. Now it is finally happening. It was always a 6-5 vote, so there was always going to be potential that the UDO could be revisited. But if city council does take action on this, make no mistake, they are watering down their key achievement of the, this decade. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if even, even members of the—this is a different city council. These are not the same people that passed it the is. UDO. It is, and the key members who— the key proponents of this are no longer on council, too. Right. Uh, but Malcolm Graham uh, and Dimple Ajmera were both in office, and they both voted in favor of the 2040 plan and therefore the uh, UDO that came along with it. Braxton Winston is gone. Taiwo Jayaba, who was the city planner, is is now, I think, in Greensboro or someplace like that. Um, I'm wondering if people who's voted yes for this know or realized or understood fully what this was going to do. Because I drove past the one in Sedgefield that's going up, and it is enormous in comparison to everything else around it. I think that the city, to, to Joe's point, it's it's always going to be a close vote, 6-5 when it passed two years ago. Um, city staff and the mayor are going to be willing to make small adjustments to the UDO and triplexes. There's one proposal that you you can't take a, if you have a five acre lot, you can't build all triplexes on it. That's that's going to pass easily, but that's not really the issue. Five acres is a tremendous amount. You know what's happening here is kind of little individual lots going yeah. one by one. But you know, as Joe said, watering it down that would be that. There will be tremendous pushback to make a change on this. How on much this of this was to provide? Well, how much of this was to provide different types of housing versus giving uh, uh, developers kind of what they want, which Charlotte has a history of, it seems to me. 
because on these lots that used to have single-family homes, they're putting these triplexes, and at least in one case, I think the one in Barclay Downs, they, they plan to sell each unit in that triplex for a million dollars, which is a lot more than you could have gotten for a single-family house. Is that what this is all about, really? I find it interesting that back at, during the UDO and 2040 plan debate, the developers never really raised concerns about this portion. Their concerns were more about, oh, if we do build a duplex or triplex, we want to have a certain amount of height. Or they, they took a look at other portions of the UDO. Their concern wasn't necessarily about the ability to put duplexes and triplexes on any single lot, for most single lots, I should say, probably because they recognize that this would be another option, increase the types of housing uh, that they can build in the future. A lot of the pushback on this provision came from community groups and residents. Okay, so City Council is also considering moving forward uh, toward offering a property tax rebate for the new owners of the old Duke Energy building uptown. They want to convert that building the new owners do into apartments, which may include units that would qualify as affordable housing. Is this why Council would even consider this move? Because it might include affordable housing? Steve? Yeah, I think that's the big play. That's how you sell council on it. That's how you get them on board. And what's interesting about this plan is that the the building you talked about, the, the old Duke headquarters, was bought um, a year ago. It was publicly announced. The developers announced the plans to convert it into housing. And now the city is is kind of, and there hasn't been a public request from them for money, you know, that we need X amount of dollars to make this happen. The city, city staff just kind of said, hey, would you like to contribute to this project? It was almost like a tip jar. Um, would you like to help them out? And that's pretty unusual. Usually when there is an ask for public money, there's kind of a clear, if we don't get this money, then we this project won't happen or this sports tournament won't come. And this was just a different situation where they're like, hey, would you like to give them some money? It's like a preemptive strike, although it, it, some of the things you just talked about are kind of in the are implied in it because Assistant City Manager and Economic Development Director Tracy Dotson says the developer, which is a D.C. based company, along with Asana Partners of Charlotte, she says they might make additional improvements to retail space and to areas for pedestrians, but not necessarily if council doesn't say give them this tax rebate? I think it gets harder. I don't know that they would say that they're walking away from it. That's a question I would ask them. Um, but I think it makes it, it makes it harder. I mean, is she talking about them walking away from the project because we didn't offer them a tax rebate that they didn't ask for in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I, I asked her that question after the meeting and said, well, what happens if the city council says no? And then that was her answer. And it, I mean, it does seem like you know, they just bought a huge office building. I'm sure it could be delayed. You know, a lot of projects are delayed now in the pipeline with yeah. high interest rates. But it was, yeah, the, the, but even, even during the presentation of council members, it was never talked about, well, this might not happen. It was just, hey, would you like to contribute to this project? And everyone in the committee was really enthusiastic about doing it. It's part of that enthusiasm because of the reports in recent weeks about how dire things are in terms of the office vacancies uptown and other places except for South End all over town. 
Yeah, exactly. The, the city has been kind of working, has been prepping council for this request for a couple of weeks now. I mean, that okay. all the these earlier discussions have all been leading to this point. You have to kind of with with council members, you have to um, you kind of walk them slowly to where you want to get them to go. And you've kind of prepped them for that. And then you pop the ask. And that's usually how you get things done. Okay. Speaking of affordable housing, Charlotte's Housing Authority, now called Inlivian, is considering tearing down the 40-year-old Gladedale Apartments at Providence and Old Providence and redeveloping that site with mostly market-rate housing, but also with an increased number of affordable housing units. And this, Mary, has some folks alarmed. Why? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um First of all, a lot of folks in the neighborhood were saying that this is going to bring so much more density. And really, they really aren't in favor of that. And some of the folks that are in these uh, houses say, we like it. We like the fact that it's uh, not dense, that it's in a neighborhood with more elderly folks, not a lot of young people. And they're kind of mistrustful because the city, when they, you know, the strong, I believe that there was those houses in Dilworth, they tore those down and said, well, we're going to build them back and we'll have some lower uh, rate for the market housing. Well, it's been years and nothing's been built. So you yeah. can see where people might be a little skeptical when the city says this. Now, the city is you know, saying, listen, we'll be able to charge market rate. We won't have to depend on other funding. Uh, we'll be able to finance our own you know, needs better and build more affordable housing. But they're getting pushback both from folks in the neighborhood who are skeptical of a high rise plunked right there at Providence and Old Providence and the people who were there who pretty much like it. Yeah, to be clear, uh, it, they, there are like 49 apartments on 8.5 acres now that are all affordable housing units for people making about $28,000 a year for a family of four, which is the 30% of the area median income. They want to put, they want to expand the number of affordable housing units, but add 1,500 new units. Uh, but that would be at market rate down the street. So this is part of a strategy that we'll talk about in a moment when we come back uh, that Olivian has to create new revenue streams. And we'll talk about where that idea came from. Has it been used before here or elsewhere? And a little more. And we'll talk about cats ridership being up, among other things. That's a surprising bit of news. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on the Local News Roundup on 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Steve Harrison is with us from WFAE News, as is Joe Bruno and Hunter Signs, but they're from WSOC-TV right down the street. And Mary C. Curtis is a columnist uh, for RollCall.com and host of their Equal Time uh, podcast. We were talking about Olivian's proposal to uh, take down the Gladedale apartments and put replace them with new affordable housing units in addition to about 1,500 uh, market rate units that would be developed and built by Levine Properties in Northwood Raven. And as you report, Steve, this is part of Olivian's strategy to create a new revenue stream so it's less dependent on money from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban, Urban Development. Is this a new idea? Has this been tried elsewhere? 
I think Enlivian is 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 in a way kind of at the forefront of this. So that's what Enlivian executives say. And their view is that, look, we are a affordable housing developer and manager, but we can't be dependent entirely on the federal government for our funding. We need to kind of take care of ourselves. And the way that they're doing that is to build um, new mixed use, well, not so much mixed use, but, but mixed, uh, you know, new housing projects with market rate housing. And they're going to take the money from that market rate housing to help sustain their operations. Um, like Mary said, there's a project in Dilworth they're trying to get off the ground. So they've got some land, some valuable land throughout the city. And they're saying, look, let's go, let's put more housing on there. Let's maximize the value of this and, and keep our organization um, stable. And this is getting pushback from people in the neighborhood and people even who live at Gladedale because they like the environment in which they are living. And they are, they are fearful that this will... Uh, in, uh, further densify things and, and change the character of that neighborhood. It's the same conversation we were just having about the triplexes. It's the kind of the same con a conversation we have when we talk about gentrification. The city council voted this all in. I'm just wondering if this is something people really want, or do we have a choice, given the fact that we're growing by leaps and bounds? Mary. Well, you know, a lot of studies have shown that these mixed income kind of putting public housing and mixing, it works as far as children who grow up uh, in these areas rather than concentrate uh, low-income folks in projects. It's interesting to me that so many of the stories that we are dealing with today, and later we'll be talking perhaps about redlining, have to do with housing, affordable housing. We need more of it. <laughs> we don't have enough of it. How can we get it, get it quickly and serve people? And it seems like we still haven't uh, really cracked that code yet because there's always discussion about where it should be, how much of it should uh, should be placed in certain neighborhoods. Uh, but in this case, it's interesting because the people in the neighborhood are saying, it's not that we mind having this, this is a fine low-income housing uh, situation. It's just that we don't want the density density of a high-rise. And the, the agreement is with the people who live there. We're saying we like living in this area. It's quiet. You have pharmacies, markets, things nearby. Uh, let's keep it as it is, particularly since they can look to the Dilworth project and say, what's happened there? Yeah. Although this is on Providence Road, and I'll, I'll say that one thing that Providence Road could use is more cars. Uh, City Council continues <laughs> to consider restoring criminal penalties to several ordinances dealing with open containers and public urination and defecation and other things that are unmentionable. Uh, the state removed those penalties a while back, but allowed municipalities to put them back in place as they saw fit. This has been a topic of debate on council for a while now. There is opposition. Uh, Joe, does council seem to be taking all that opposition and all of their concerns into consideration? And when will they actually take a vote on this? Uh, vote could come on Monday. It seems like they're trying to find a, a nice balance between restoring the criminal penalties while also increasing resources for people who are homeless and also increasing uh, restroom access, especially in Uptown. Okay, so well, that's, that vote is coming Monday, so we'll know more next week. Uh, Steve, for over a year, you have been immersed in 
ridership figures for cats. And you have reported many times that uh, ridership on mass transit in every major city in the country was down, and, and that's not really recovered since the pandemic. I think it's 75% of what it was in most cities, but it's around 60% here, or at least it was, because this week you report that cats has seen some growth. Yeah, I mean, it's still at 60%. Um, that's that's where CATS is compared to before the pandemic. But the the, 20, the the numbers for 2023 just came out. And so for the year, they were up nearly 11% over 2022. So, you know, CATS feels good about that, that they are slowly climbing back. If they can keep adding 10% a year, mm-hmm. then that'll be great news. I mean, they'll eventually get back to where they were. And the question will be, can they keep building on this for the future? Given the, of all the vacancies uptown and elsewhere for office buildings, which are were driven largely by work at home, which came from the pandemic, why is ridership on the uptick? Do they understand what's going on? Well, I think that more people are working. You know, over 2023, more people started to get called back to the office, you know, either for some days or if you were going in two days, now you have to go in three or four. So employers are getting a little bit of an upper hand again and getting people back in the office. But again, we'll have to see whether the old traditional five workday week, whether it ever comes back. Hunter Signs is here from Channel 9. He's sitting right next to Joe, and he has a fresh haircut. So we have to really let him in here uh, to do this. When CMPD Perfect released, for the radio. That's exactly right. When CMPD released its crime reports t- statistics for 2023, one of the things that emerged was that the number of people who are accused of a crime, often a violent crime, who are released while awaiting trial, come back and commit other crimes many, many times while they're out on bail. And you reported this week that a man, or last week, that a man named uh, Michael Withers uh, was released from jail last Thursday night. What's his story? Why is that a story? It's quite a long story, but Michael Withers is a convicted felon who was originally arrested um, for first-degree murder back in 2021. He's accused of killing Hasheen McIntyre in Huntersville on a basketball court, shooting and killing him. Uh, He was arrested. He was giving a half-million-dollar bond. He ended up posting that bond and was out on the streets again. Then uh, at the end of last year, Rowan County Sheriff's deputies arrested him and charged him in a shootout in an apartment complex up in Rowan County. Again, he was given bond and posted bond. And then uh, a couple weeks ago in January, he was arrested down in Matthews, um, accused of assaulting his child's mother in a domestic violence situation. Uh, then appeared in Mecklenburg County Court, and the judge gave him a $75,000 bond, knowing um, the alleged crimes against him previously. And of course, he posted that in 24 hours and is currently back out on the streets. Now, I did get an update just yesterday that the DA's office um, has asked uh, another judge to look at this and has asked them, based on all of these alleged crimes, to revoke his bond, finally. So he's been accused multiple times of, for violent crimes and, and let out on, on bond. Do we know how many times this has happened over the years? So that's at least three um, okay. there. Uh, but there has also been bond hearing motions in which the DA's office has asked 
for his bond to be revoked before. Uh, the only judge, um, according to court records, who actually uh, said he was a danger to society and revoked his bond was Judge Carla Archie. But then other judges since then um, have overturned that judgment itself. So the man that he is accused of killing, Hashin, uh, uh, Hashin uh, McIntyre, um, uh, has a, has a, his uncle is Berkeley Harmon, is that right? Correct, yeah. Okay, and Harmon told you what, what you just said, that this man is a danger to the community as long as he is on the street. Here we are again. You know, we all learn patterns in third grade. <laughs> this is three times they all have violence to them. You should not need more. And he added this. The court system shares in his next crime. How are you really protecting your community if you're doing this? The court system shares in his next crime. Is that resonating in the criminal justice system? I think it is, and it will be interesting to see when the date uh, when the date comes of this next hearing. What happens based on all of this evidence that the DA's office now has, and this back and forth with the judges overriding judges in this? I think there is. We are starting to see. It's another example, though, Mike. Um, I know you've seen this before of. Um, alleged offenders getting out and allegedly reoffending again. So here we are again. I think this one is resonating just because of the circumstances of each and every case. Uh, this is just one uh, of a seemingly mounting number of failures in our criminal justice system. Steve, you reported this week on a mother whose son, DJ Marshall, was killed as the victim of a drunk driver. That was back in March of last year. What happened in that incident? Yeah, it was a, yeah, this was a, a really sad story, a really hard story. Um, like you said, there was a, a, a DWI fatality on Providence Road, or Primeville Matthews Road near Providence High School back in March. Um, the driver uh, was charged with felony death by motor vehicle. Um, had, you know, a few hours after the accident was over the legal limit. Um, on his blood alcohol test. And then I spoke with the mother about kind of the past 11 months, and she was really distraught that uh, the district attorney's office was going to offer um, involuntary manslaughter um, and that the driver was going to get 30 days in jail yeah. plus probation. Yeah, this and is what for the this, mother. This, yeah. this, was her, this was her reaction to hearing that news. I'm his voice. I'm, I'm, I'm his mother. I'm, I'm appalled. I'm, I'm shocked at what I have learned. So she learned that he was going to be recommended for how, how long a sentence? Uh, 30 days 30 in Mecklenburg days. jail plus probation. Which is what happened yesterday, because the, 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 the court, the court decided that yesterday was going to be the 30, was going to be the that was going to be the sentence. And in fact, that is the sentence. And when the DA spoke with her about that, she had another reaction. And she just happened to be recording the Zoom call that this took place on. So we have the audio and we can hear her reaction to the DA's recommended punishment. Essentially, what that looks like is he would have an active sentence hanging over his head. He would be on probation, but he would serve a split sentence of custody it would be only a month, 30 days. Oh, 
pretty amazing. Uh, she later asked, how can anyone say that sentence is anything close to reasonable? And as you report, in 2022, the year before uh, her son was killed, 58 people in Mecklenburg County died due to alcohol-related vehicle crashes, the highest number of deaths in 20 years. Why such a short sentence? Is this normal for somebody who killed someone in, in a DWI incident? So at the hearing yesterday, that prosecutor, Monica Noble, kind of spoke to the judge and in a way was speaking to the court, explaining the plea, explaining the sentence, and was saying that, look, um, DWI is really hard. It's really hard to prosecute and that the driver had no priors um, and that felony death by motor vehicle is something that you, you have to show that the, the impairment was a proximate cause of the accident. Um, that they were worried they were going to be able to do that. The DA's office was worried a judge might just give them, give the driver probation in the end. Um, and, but for the prosecutor, I mean, the, the mother was clearly anguished and even the prosecutor was, seemed very torn by what they were doing and what they felt like they had to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, another incident yesterday, uh, an officer involved shooting in the Beatty's Ford uh, corridor area. Uh, I'm not sure who, who has the story on this, Joe or Hunter, but uh, shots were fired in a residential neighborhood and three people are in hospital as a result of this. Hunter? Yeah, Joe is actually out okay. on this story, um, but it has, I mean, the, the good news here is that the person who was shot by police is expected to be okay. But Joe, you actually spoke to a lot of people out there on the scene. Yeah, so the um, the officer involved shooting was in front of Fast Mart number five on Beatty's Ford Road, which is across from the food line near LaSalle. Um, it, uh, police apparently saw two men outside this mini mart engaging what they called drug activity. Uh, they claim they confronted the men, and one of the men started to run, and when he was running, he reached for a gun and pointed it in the direction of officers, and uh, officers shot the man. He is expected to survive, but um, the community members and his family says that this man is like well-known in the Beatty's Ford area, and they say Metro Division officers who are really big into foot patrols, and they should have known who this man was and have no adjusted the response or their initial response in a way that he would have understood. Uh, but CMPD, uh, Deputy Chief David Robinson said, no matter what somebody is going through, if you point a gun at or in the direction of officers and they perceive a threat, they are required to take action. Okay. Hunter, a, a student at North Mecklenburg High School, brought a stolen loaded gun to school and the body scanners there did not catch it so how did police catch it so uh it was a fight that broke out um at the school in which resource officers um were told quickly broke that fight up and found a um loaded like you said 20 bullets i counted in the picture um a loaded handgun in one of the students backpacks cms says it's really unclear at this point how it managed to get through the doors and past the scanners the scanners were working according to cms um so i'm sure that they are trying to investigate and get down to the bottom of this but it's a scary thing i will say the scanners have helped 
um, with a, a large drop in guns being found and brought on CMS campuses. Yeah, the concerning thing here, obviously, is the fact that there was a gun on campus. But the other thing is that the scanners didn't pick it up. But we should be clear that the gun was neither produced nor used in the fight that, this, uh, that happened at, at that school. So it was just in the backpack. Uh, but guns seem to be a running theme all across the country. The reaction to guns in schools, more gun violence, mass shootings around the country. And the reaction to that is evidently, let's have more guns. This year, North Carolina had uh, the biggest bump in gun purchase background checks in the nation. Why, Mary? Well, that's really, looking at that trend, they use it to, to the increase in background checks means an increase in people wanting to get guns. Um, and we've seen that. It's a check from the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. And this state has really come up. And one reason they attribute that is to the repeal last year of North Carolina's uh, long-held pistol purchase permit law. And that required anybody who wanted to buy a handgun, they had to first get a permit, which would be good for five years, from the sheriff's office. Well, um, you know, before the sheriff did that, they would run an extensive background check, not only through the instant check system, but through a state and local criminal databases. Um, but there were complaints that they weren't uh, really issuing them fast enough. And now things have changed because of the, the change in the law. We'll come back and we'll talk about what's, what, how, how it has changed in just a moment. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's the local news roundup on Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. WFAE News Steve Harrison is with us along with Joe Bruno and Hunter Sines from Channel 9 and Mary C. Curtis, host of Roll Call, host of their RollCall.com's Equal Time podcast and the columnist there. Prior to the break, Mary, we were talking about how uh, North Carolina had the biggest bump in gun purchase background checks in the nation last year. And part of it is due to the fact that a law that required people who who wanted a pistol to get a permit from the sheriff and the sheriff would then run the background check and evidently there was an incredible backlog for a very long time in the sheriff's department they had a backlog of 6000 permit applications some more than 4 months old but now you don't have to have a pistol permit to carry a gun you still get the background check the gun dealers do it and the number of background checks is on the rise. So is that because more people are getting guns or is it because they're more efficient at doing the background checks? Well, I think it says that there was a pent up demand. Uh, the sheriff's offices did kind of catch up uh, somewhat, but they were sued by license, uh, by, by gun owners that they weren't doing them quickly enough. Now, yes, the licensed gun dealers still have to do the background checks, and they do with the instant system to see if perhaps you have a domestic violence uh, or restraining order against you, something like that, if you've been committed to a, an institution. But I will have to say that uh, for private sales, that's out the window. I mean, you can then have a private gun sale, and then they're not doing... Uh, you could sell a gun to somebody and they don't have to have any background checked at all. 
So last fall, if you went to the ballot box and voted, Mecklenburg County voters approved the largest bond issue in state history, $2.5 billion to finance various projects for Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. And this week, the North Carolina Local Government Commission voted to approve the issuance of those bonds. Remind us what those bonds will go for, the $2.5 billion. Well, there are dozens of projects that are slated, uh, school reconstructions, new schools, uh, enhancement to current schools are kind of spread all throughout the county. And there was some questions about whether this local government commission would take a close eye, maybe have some skepticism because of the price tag, but we really didn't see any of that. It was unanimous approval. So uh, CMS will get their funds and we'll get the new schools because voters approved it. And we will remind folks that unlike previous bond issues, almost all other previous bond issues that we've ever talked about, this one will have an increase in property taxes at some point in the future to to pay for some of this. Uh, Meanwhile, major city water treatment plants do a lot of things to treat the water that comes out of water sources to to make it safe. They put additives in the water, among them fluoride. And Fluoride has been added to the water in most systems in the United States since 1945. It's a long time ago. But Union County is considering a change, and Dr. Noah Meneker, who practices dentistry in Union County, warned against the change because of research showing that fluoride reduces cavity risk. We're part of a society and it's thinking about the greater good. As a dentist, I would much rather give good news. The best day is when we get to tell kids and parents that they don't have any cavities and a huge part of that is fluoride. This is just something that we've been taking for granted like so many other things, but now is being called into question. And Union County Commissioners took up that debate on Monday night. The the decision before us tonight is actually if the Union County Board of Commissioners has the authority to forcibly medicate its residents. For me, it's about freedom of choice, um, consent. Now, to be clear, this decision will only affect the new water plant that is about to come online from uh, the Yatkin River, the Yatkin treatment plant. The old water plant will continue to fluoridate the water, and there'll be a mixture of water from the two plants. So where is this move coming from and what will they achieve? It does seem to have just popped up. There isn't really a nationwide push from what I can tell to review the fluoridation of water. And uh, I think that a lot of communities, if you start seeing this issue pop up, it might be because Union County really got the ball rolling here. Um, it is kind of a complicated water system where one plant will be fluoridated, the other plant will not be. But the way the Union County water system works at any point, the customers could have fluoridated water or they may not. Um, and if the Lancaster County Water Sewer District decides to take up the fluoridation issue, Uh, then maybe all water in Union County will not be fluoridated. But it seems to be a push under the um, guise of medical freedom and consent that really seems to be like the motivating factor for the anti-fluoridation folks. Um, And on the other side, you had all these dentists and – Uh, even some professors of dentistry who said, you know, this is research has shown that this is prevented tooth decay and cavity 
months. And uh, well, is it worth revisiting this? According to the U.S. Public Health Service, more than 60 percent of the total U.S. population, and actually it surprised me that the number was that low, is served by public water systems that fluoridate the water. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called the Florida fluoridation of water one of the 10 great public health achievements of the 20th century. Have there ever been any negative impacts that we know about from fluoridation of the water? I believe early on, like in the 40s, they overdid it, and that caused some problems with uh, the browning of teeth. But I think they've had that under control for about 70 years now, haven't they? Yeah, but you know, this conspiracy goes back to then. Remember in the 40s and 50s, there were the conspiracies about fluoride in the water was like a pro-communist mind control or something. These uh, conspiracies never die. Okay. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not. Not everybody's on board with this. We should say that. And uh, WSOC-TV spoke with Jessica Overby. She's a mother who believes in fluoride treatment and worries that the Union County commissioners don't. And she asked this question. Just why? Why would you want to take that away from our kids that need it? So do we know which way these commissioners are leading and when will they make their decision, Joe? Well, so it was a 3-2 vote in favor of not fluoridating the water. Sorry, I'm still <laughs> getting these words. <laughs> not fluoridizing, fluoridating the water. Um, and for the first vote, in order to pass, it had to be unanimous. It wasn't. So they will take another vote on the 19th. And that could just be majority, and it will go into effect. Also, it's not just Union County now. Stanley County, also on the 19th, is going to discuss its water and whether it should be fluoridated. The awesomeness of confusion in government continued this week in Washington. Republicans there kept shooting themselves in the foot, failing to impeach uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas something they only they advocated, and then failing to pass a comprehensive bill that included major protections and restrictions at the border, which included almost everything Republicans had ever dreamed of. And it happened because citizen Trump told them to vote no because he wants to retain immigration as an issue in the upcoming campaign. Mary, is this proof positive that the Republican Party no longer wants to govern or solve problems, but only to have problems on which they can run? Well, we saw our own Senator Tom Tillis say a little bit ago that he wasn't going to be taking orders from Donald Trump because he was sent to Washington to solve problems. And that's what they are there for, which we think that's true. Um, but uh, of course, he was against it then, too. But at the same time, we see how in the House, the districts are so gerrymandered that you actually have people saying our our constituents our constituents sent us to Washington to not do anything, to gum up the works. And right now it is very clear that Trump uh, doesn't want, wants to have immigration as an issue. That said, tied up in all of this, of course, is aid to Ukraine, uh, aid to Israel, uh, uh, Taiwan. So this is really holding up that aid as well. Yeah. Um, but we also see now that Ukraine has become an issue where many Republicans are against aid to Ukraine, and that's become a big issue. So right now, Washington, yes, it's deadlocked. And, uh, you know, basically, it's. I wrote a comment about this in Roll Call. 
you have to serve a constituency of many kinds of people with many kinds of views, but they are not there to do that. They are just playing to the base. So not, not much will get done, although everybody agrees that there is a crisis at the border. Donald Trump is uh, pulling the strings, and he is the clear front runner in the Republican race for president. Uh, he uh, clearly won the Nevada primary. And nobody won, uh, excuse me, he clearly won the Nevada caucuses. Nobody won the Nevada primary. None of the above won that primary, 634 to 30.4%. The 30% went to Nikki Haley. So explain to me what that does to her in the upcoming South Carolina primary. Yeah, it didn't look, it wasn't a good look where she came in second when she was the person on the ballot. Uh, obviously, the none of these candidates was pro-Trump. The South Carolina polls are saying that Trump is very much ahead. She's come out very tough, but it, many people said it's really too late. It seems like her whole campaign was based uh, on the premise that something would happen to Trump, that one of the indictments would happen or he would, some, something would happen. Well, he's become stronger. Uh, he's doing well in the polls. So her whole argument that she's more electable isn't resonating with people who want Trump. And if she's defeated in her own state, yeah. I'm not sure how much longer she'll last in the race. So here's the surprise. A newly released Moody's Analytics election model predicts, are you ready? Are you sitting down? President Biden will win re-election by a thin margin and be the first Democratic presidential candidate to win North Carolina since Barack Obama. And what's new about this is that it's using economic data to predict election results. It means that it sees North Carolina turning blue based on the economy. But most other polls show tremendous dissatisfaction with the economy, and they blame President Biden for it. So how much stock can we put in this poll? Well, the uh, election is a long way away, so I would say no. they're basing it like the fact that people in North Carolina feel good about the economy, that the economy is turning around, um, that actually it's always been very tight. Trump won the state in 2020 by, by a very slim margin, and we have a lot of newcomers who might change the tenor of the electorate. But a lot of that depends on turnout. Democrats have not had great turnout in North Carolina. They're trying to boost that. Um, and we are in such a partisan time that people are really hardened, no matter what the issues are. They are really into team red and blue. So, uh, you know, I would take it all with a grain of salt. And every day something happens. So. Sticking with politics for just a minute longer, the Black Political Caucus uh, of Charlotte Mecklenburg, which is considered the most influential endorsing organization in the county, came out with their endorsements yesterday. Steve, who did they throw their support for, to? I thought there were a couple interesting pieces. One, at kind of the high, the big offices at the state level, they backed Josh Stein for governor and they backed Jeff Jackson for attorney general. Um, I think it's noteworthy, but both of them have are running against kind of qualified African-American candidates. The BPC doesn't always endorse black candidates, but they often do. And in this case, they, you know, went, they did not do that. Um, so I think that was interesting. And then if you go at the local level, Mecklenburg County Commission, um, is on the ballot next month, and they declined to endorse two longtime incumbents at large council member at large commissioner Pat Cotham did not get the nod, and the same with Vil Malik, who's been in District Two for many many years. So that was, uh, you know, I saw that, and 
That was yeah. a surprise. Meanwhile, North Carolina House Majority Leader Republican John Bell has become the president of a startup company manufacturing CBD products, even as the General Assembly is making up regulations for those products. Is that a conflict of interest? I, I think it could be, and that, that House Majority Leader Leader Bell could recuse himself from any ultimate vote, but I think that he will clearly have kind of a influence on whatever legislation they do come up with. It looks like now the initial thought that the General Assembly is going to do were just kind of some basic age limits on who can buy these products, because right now there's really there really aren't yeah. any. I mean, you can 12 year olds can can have it. They they're really the stores don't allow them to buy it, but legally they could. We need some good news, and Hunter has it. You often hear about lottery winners. You rarely hear about what they do with their money. Uh, you reported this week on a guy named Barry Ship who bought a $5 scratch-off card and won $200,000. How's he spending that money? Barry is the man. He was homeless himself for two years, and now he works with a Roof Above, but he has his own nonprofit called Pivot Point, and he plans to spend a bulk of it building four more additional temporary housing shelters um, to try to help the homeless problem that we have here in the city and giving back with all of that money. Pretty amazing. Uh, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein announced this week a $13.5 million settlement with First National Bank of Pennsylvania, which had been accused of discriminatory lending practices toward black and Hispanic neighborhoods in Charlotte and Winston-Salem. It's more of a, a century-old prog- uh, uh, thing that's been going on for a century uh, called redlining. Uh, is, is it more of a surprise, Mary, that it's been still going on or that they were called on it? <laughs> well, I don't think it's a really uh, a surprise that it's still going on because we've seen this. We started off talking about housing. Yeah, one reason why we have a housing problem is because so many black and brown folks were redlined out of neighborhoods when they were affordable. So now the bank has to give more loans uh, and to black and brown folks to, to invest in those neighborhoods. But this is why we still have the problem today. So, Joe, I have 45 seconds left. And yesterday afternoon, late yesterday afternoon, the Hornets announced some trades and some uh, hometown guys coming home. Take us through that. Uh, The rebuild is underway. Out (laughs) Gordon Hayward, P.J. Washington, a couple of Ish Smith and incoming Grant Williams, Providence Day graduate, and Seth Curry, son of Dell, brother of Steph, a great shooter. So we got two Charlotte guys coming in. And as the Hornets try to get younger and more mature and look to the future here to build around LaMelo Ball, Brandon Miller, and, and Mark Williams. And they're, and they're in Milwaukee tonight to play the Bucks. So we'll see what happens with their two new teammates, I guess. Steve Harrison from WFAE News, Joe Bruno from WSOC TV, along with Hunter Signs from Channel 9, and Mary C. Curtis from RollCall.com. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.